our achievements or privilege. Paul says, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. Watch out for those dogs, those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort, though I could have confidence in my own effort if anyone could. Indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Well, good morning, everybody. Good to see you here today. I know there's still some away with COVID and the flu and cold and who knows what else. So uh, glad to see you here today. We are continuing on in the book of Philippians. So if you have your Bibles, take them, please, and turn to Philippians chapter 3. And uh, we heard verses 1 to 6 already read, so I won't reread them. Uh, let me uh, share something with you. When Gloria and I were in Greece, uh, we discovered that the Greeks uh, are very religious. In fact, the majority of the country would consider itself to be Greek Orthodox or Christian. And uh, when I say the majority, I'm saying like 97% of the people would say, I, I'm definitely uh, Greek Orthodox. Well, here's what we discovered. We discovered that although they may be very religious, they're also very superstitious. So every home has got something like this. It's a, it's a holy picture, and attached to it is what's called the evil eye. And uh, you'll see in every home uh, crosses or crucifixes put up. And all of these things are supposed to help in the process of keep, keeping, keeping people safe and helping people in their day-to-day -day life. Well, let me just quickly tell you about the evil eye. This is a... a a charm. It's called an evil eye charm, which dates back to about 600 BC. And, uh, and it's something that is very much part of every, almost every Greek person's life. Uh, you'll see icons in their home, usually a little corner with icons. It's icons meaning religious pictures of various saints or Jesus or Mary. And then little candles will be lit there, and maybe a little cross will be there. And also then one of these, one of these evil eyes. Well, here's, here's what they believe. They believe that if someone looks at you with envy or with anger or bitterness or jealousy or any neg anything negative, that somehow that will in turn be like a curse upon you. And so what they do is they, they have that evil eye and the evil eye charm is supposed to ward off those uh, evil, that evil energy that's coming your way. In fact, that's why they, they put these little, um, these little charms on babies and on young adults, young children, because they believe that Satan especially wants to attack young children and young adults. And, uh, and so you, wherever you go, you're going to see these evil eyes. The other thing that they do is if ever they come across a church, they'll quickly cross themselves 
And uh, that is very important, and they do it several times. And it's, you can't just do this. You have to do this, because that represents the Trinity. So it, all, it all matters how you do this. You've got to get got to get the formula right if you really want God's protection and God's blessing. And it goes on and on. Um, when Jesse was born, we took him out in public. Uh, a little bit prematurely, we found out. You're supposed, women are supposed to stay indoors for 40 days after they have a baby. But being from Canada, what do we know? We were out within the first seven days, and the Greeks are all like... and. And uh, so when, when the Greek ladies would come up to us and see Jesse, they'd say, oh, a beautiful little baby, <laughs> and spit. Now, this got quite shocking. We thought, well, are they just saying he's a beautiful baby? But really, they don't, they don't think so, because they would spit every time. Uh, and apparently, the spitting was supposed to confuse the devil. So you say something nice, and then you spit, and then the Satan doesn't know how to take that. <laughs> was it good or bad? So this is, this, was, uh, this is the Greek culture. Um, I want you to see that cross to my far right. And uh, this, th- this, listen to this. This, uh, this was some words of a Greek funeral director. He says, for many years, I have shared the message of the power of the cross with many families at the time of the passing of a loved one. So far, so good. He says, I believe evil exists. And yet, to me, evil is insignificant in comparison to the power of the cross. Well, so far, I think so good. But then he goes on to say this. When I became a funeral director in 1967, I pledged before the good Lord that I would secure an orthodox cross, like that one there, into the back head panel of the casket of each deceased Orthodox Christian in order to ward off the possibility of any person attending uh, who visits the, the, the casket and then casts an evil eye on the deceased. And also to install into, or instill into everyone who is present the power of the cross. So obviously we don't, we're not in agreement because he thought that the, that the power of the cross was in the actual, literal, physical cross, that if he had a little cross in the casket, that that would ward off evil spirits. So at this point, we, like, we're completely in, in, on different pages. We're not singing from the same hymn book even. We're completely on, uh, in a different place. Now, it's tempting for us to look at this and to shake our heads and go, oh, silly Greeks, silly people. How could they, how could they think such things? How could they believe such things? How could they believe that what we have to do is add to Jesus uh, a charm, a lucky charm? It's mind-boggling, but they're covering all their bases. They don't want to miss anything. So we're tempted to to laugh at these people. We're tempted to scorn them, maybe, and think how silly they are to be so superstitious. But here's the thing that you need to understand We as Christians are always tempted to add to Jesus. Did you get that? We're tempted to add to the cross, add to Christ, add to the work that Jesus did. And so this is why people come up with lucky charms, and they wear crosses and crucifixes. And sometimes you'll you'll see people, if something evil is happening, you'll see them do this. And, you know, we, we do it as a, as a joke, but, but this means something. So to some people, this really means I'm warding off evil by making the sign of the cross, as if Satan is scared of this. Yeah. 
And so I remember my grandmother, who is uh, Ukrainian uh, Catholic, said that in her home they had all kinds of holy pictures on the wall, and, uh, and they would try to have even a picture of the Pope on the wall. And all of this would help to bring uh, harmony and peace and God's protection on the home. Well, the Greek Orthodox and the Catholics, they all resort to these charms and crosses and crucifixes. And some Catholics, they will not sleep in a bedroom unless it's got a crucifix in it. Some, some people, they won't go on a trip without St. Christopher's charm. Has anybody heard of that? The St. Christopher's charm, one of the saints. And, uh, and so there's this constant, constant adding to Christ, as though Christ were not able on his own to protect us. Imagine God sitting in heaven saying, well, I sure hope Chris puts on the St. Christopher or I won't be able to help him. How ridiculous is this? And so we cluck our tongues and we maybe even are tempted to laugh and mock at these people. Well, folks, listen, the Jewish people, as we read in Philippians, they were kind of doing the same thing. They said, we need to add to the work of Christ by making sure that you're circumcised and that you keep all of the Mosaic law. And Paul writes a whole letter to deal with that. We call it the, the letter to the Galatians. You read it sometimes. It's, it's one of Paul's most, uh, most acid-tongued uh, uh, letters ever written or ever penned. But now before we get too self-righteous, let me just remind you that we Protestants, we also like to add to Jesus. We believe that if we're, if we're baptized, that that's going to make sure we, we, that'll get us into heaven. I have people come to me all the time saying, I want to get all my kids baptized, and my husband hasn't been, I got to get him baptized, and, and I'm going to get baptized a second time just to make sure. Make sure of what? People think that if I get baptized, I'm going to heaven. Some people think if I take communion, that's a magic, it's a magic potion that somehow a pastor Allen will wave his magic wand over the communion elements, and if I take those communion elements, I'm going to heaven. Sometimes we think that if we, uh, if we are members of the church, if I'm, if I'm accepted into membership, if Pastor Allen gives a stamp of approval on me, then it's good as gold. I'm getting into heaven. This is what we do. We want to constantly add to, add to Christ. And if those, there's some of us who are a little bit more sophisticated than that. We, oh, I, would, I don't believe that. I would never think that. But here's what we will do in order to add to Christ is we'll say, well, if I'm doing my good works, if I make sure that I sponsor a, a child, if I sponsor two children, well, that's really good with God. And if I get three kids, woo, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be in the rich part of heaven. But sometimes we just think if I just do good works, if I'm, if, and if, I, if I'm good enough, if I can be good, if I can be a good person, then that, that's, that's, what it needs to, that's what it needs to be. I want to remind you of something this morning. We have no confidence in our own ability. And this is what the Apostle Paul says to the Philippians. He says, for we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised, We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no, read it with me, we put no confidence in human effort. And your Bible might say no confidence in the flesh. We don't trust ourselves to win favor with God. And we'll talk more in just a moment about what it means and and how to win favor with God. But Paul reminds the Philippians that our confidence must be in Christ alone. Now listen, 
Anybody who teaches you or preaches anything other than that is preaching what Paul would call a false gospel. And Paul says in his letter to the Galatians, but even if we or an angel from heaven should come preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preached to you, let that person be accursed. You're under a curse if you are suggesting that, that you and Jesus are gonna save you. Alan Duncalf and Jesus can't save Alan. Only Jesus can save Alan. Does everybody get that? And the same thing goes for you. You cannot save yourself. You need the work of Christ, and only the work of Christ will save you. That's what I want to. I want to. I want to go on 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 that theme this morning. We put no confidence in our human effort. No confidence in anything outside of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul is, is making it clear here. What the reformers made clear 500 years ago, it is solus Christus. It's Christ alone. Everybody, everybody remember that or remember hearing of that? Solus Christus. Could you say that with me? Solus Christus. Christ alone. It's Christ alone. He, is, he alone has the power and the ability to save us. You cannot save yourself. And so here's what Paul says then in the first, first verse of that passage, 1 to 6. He says, whatever happens, my dear brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. I never get tired of telling you these things, and I do it to safeguard your faith. So what's Paul saying here? He's saying what you and I need to learn to do is we need to learn to focus on Christ alone. Our rejoicing, our, our happiness should be and only should be Christ alone. That's the thing that should be making us happy. Now, if Christ alone is not making you happy, then folks, that's a great big red flag in your spiritual life that something's not right. If you need something other than Christ to cause you to rejoice, then the, there's maybe a good possibility that, in fact, maybe you're not converted. Maybe you're not born again yet. The thing that brings rejoicing to our hearts is understanding and knowing that we have all that we need in Christus, solus Christus, in Christ alone. That's all, that's all we need. Now listen, when you're focusing on Christ alone and you understand the work that Christ has done, for the done on the cross for you, then it gives you cause for great rejoicing. Because here's, here's what you and I need to remember on a daily basis. Jesus Christ went to the cross and died for your sins and my sins. In other words, he took the penalty that you deserve. He took it upon himself. Is anybody, anybody happy about that? Oh, yeah. There's one or two of us that are. Maybe you've got to just review that again. Christ took upon himself the punishment that you and I deserve. We deserve death. That was the, that's what God decreed in the Garden of Eden before man even sinned. You're going to die. That's the penalty for sin. And so Christ died for us. We don't have to die for ourselves, hallelujah. And even if you did die for yourself, guess what? It's not enough because you're not perfect. 
and you never can be perfect. We all know that about ourselves, don't we? If we're, if we're honest, if we really are honest, we know that we are sinners. So Christ died for us. And in dying for us, he took away the, t- took away the punishment we deserve. But it gets better. He reconciles us to the Father. He, he brings us back into the Garden of Eden, as it were, back into fellowship with the Father. When you are... When you are uh, not a believer, when you're unsaved, when you're not a Christian, you, you, are, you do not have access to God the way a believer has access to God. Jesus is the one that restores it. He's the one who brings us back into the glorious presence of God and then gives us the privilege and the right to bring all of our prayer requests, our needs to our Heavenly Father. We can do that. An unbeliever can't do that. But a believer can. A believer can come with confidence knowing that the Father loves him and the Father wants to help him and bless him and meet his needs. You see why we rejoice in the Lord alone? Because we're, we're, it's clear in Scripture that, that your goodness, your righteousness is as filthy rags. That gets no favor with God. You can't get anywhere with your goodness when it comes to God. But with Christ, everything is yours. Everything the Father has is yours. No wonder then we rejoice in Christ alone. And Paul says, I, I, got, I got no problem telling you this over and over again. And if, if you've been with us from, from day one in this sermon series, you know that we keep talking about rejoice, 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 rejoice. And Paul says, I got no problem telling you this over and over and over again. Why? Because it's a thing that's going to safeguard or protect your faith. It's going to keep your faith strong. Because your faith now is not in yourself. Now, I'm going to tell you something. This, you may not know this about yourself, but this is our natural default setting. We want to turn to ourselves. We want to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We, we want to be self, self-controlled and, and, and self-contained, and, and, and we want to take charge of our own life, and we want to prove to everybody that I've got it all under control. That's our pride. That's our arrogance. That's Adam and Eve. That's, that's every human being. But Paul says the thing that's going to safeguard your faith is that your faith is in Christ alone. What does Paul say, or what does the writer of Hebrews say to us? He says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. You can't get God's favor outside of faith. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself a bit here, but I need you to, to understand that that's where we begin. So every time you come to church to worship God, at your home you're worshiping God, if maybe you're driving in your car you're worshiping God, what are you doing? You, you are declaring your complete and utter dependence upon Christ alone. If that's not what your worship is about, well, then you're just singing songs. You're just singing camp songs. You may as well sing Kumbaya and there's a hole in the bottom of the sea and, and any other song that, that comes to you. But true worship recognizes that our hope is in Christ alone and our life is in Christ alone. That's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, rejoicing the Lord is what safeguards our faith because we're focusing on Christ alone. Well, then Paul is telling his, his brethren in Philippi, He's telling this them because of the problem with these Judaizers. He says, watch out for those dogs. 
those people who do evil, those mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved. What's he talking about? Well, you've heard me talk about this in a few messages. Let me just remind you of what Paul is addressing. So Paul, by the way, is addressing the fact that there is some disunity in the church. But another problem is that there's a group of Jews whom Paul calls Judaizers because these Jewish, so-called Jewish Christians are going around teaching people that they have to return to the law of Moses, that they have to be circumcised. And Paul makes it clear, especially in the book of, of Galatians, that circumcision is, is not necessary. The only thing that's necessary is what? Faith of Christ alone. That's right, faith in Christ alone. So Paul says these dogs, these people who do evil, these mutilators who say you must be circumcised to be saved are the ones that you need to watch out for. Now, can I just say, I just want to say this, just to bring this a little bit uh, closer to home for us. There are people, there are preachers who preach, and this is, this is uh, very important to get this. Some of you are from a fundamentalist background. You went to a fundamentalist church. I've been to fundamentalist churches. I've heard the sermons that the fundamentalist preachers preach, and some of you have heard the term fundamentalist. So what are they teaching? They teach you that you must, you must keep the law. You must never break the law. You must, you must be holy. You must do this. You must do that. You must not do that. You must not do the other thing. And it goes on and on and on. I was kind of raised like that, uh, not so much from my parents, but my grandparents. They believed that you had to do certain things. You shouldn't dance. You shouldn't drink. You shouldn't smoke. There's so many things you should not do. Don't, 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 don't. And if you don't do all those things, well, then you're a great Christian. And it's utter nonsense. This kind of fundamentalism has created a standard that no human can live up to. And so you're saying, Pastor John, are you telling me then that I can go and do whatever I want? Of course I'm not telling you that. You'd be an idiot to think that. Of course not. But what I'm telling you is that in your own strength, in your own steam and power, you don't have the ability to live up to God's high standard. But here's the good news, people. Here's the good news. Jesus Christ has sent us his Holy Spirit to dwell in us. And the power of Almighty God is at work in you and in me, enabling us to live the life that God has called us to live. You will still sin. You will still fall short of the glory of God. There's still some indwelling sin. But the good news is that God is at work in you, transforming you by his spirit, shaping you and molding you into the image of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Woo! Feels like Easter. So Paul says, watch out for those idiots, those dingbats. Those numbskulls, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. <laughs> you see, the Judaizers were calling these Christians who were following Paul, they were calling them dogs and evil people. And Paul just flips it right around and throws it right back in their face. No, you're the dogs. You are the evil people. You are the mutilators. You know, Paul says to the Galatians, this will shock your mind. Because you want to do circumcision? Well, go, go the whole way and cut everything off. Yeah. Shocking language from a preacher. But Paul's making it clear to us the only way that we are going to find the favor of God is by putting our faith in Christ alone, not in your own ability, not in yourself. 
Now, if you're still not convinced, I got more to tell you. They wanted to add to the work of Christ to be saved. And folks, we're still doing it today. And I mentioned some of those things. They're going to be baptized. I got to take, if I take communion, then I'll go to heaven. If I get my membership, if I give money in church, and if I, uh, if I can speak in tongues. I met, a, I met a missionary in Greece from, uh, 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 it, was a, it was called a oneness, uh, oneness Pentecostals. They, 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 believe, they don't believe in the Trinity. And they believe that God manifests himself in three different ways. We call this the heresy of modalism in different modes. So God will appear as a father, then he'll appear as Jesus Christ, and then sometimes he'll appear as the Holy Spirit. This is heresy. It's called modalism. So these people, they believe that, that we are now in a kind of a Holy Spirit dispensation where it's, now it's the work of the Spirit, and it's the Spirit who reveals himself to us. And they believe that if you didn't speak in tongues, then you're not going to heaven. And I, what verse from the Bible did you find this? Where in the Scripture do you find that? Well, it's not specifically laid out that way, but if we look at the Bible and if we, if we compare verses and if we look at context and, and all this gobbledygook, absolute nonsense. Christ alone. Did you hear me? Christ alone. Now, some people think, well, like if I'm obedient enough, I could just be obedient. I'm going I'm to just really work hard at being obedient. It's the same thing as what, what Martin Luther did, right? Remember, he was beating himself and whipping himself and cutting himself and doing, trying to really punish himself for his sin. His, 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 his faith was in himself and his ability to be good, but, but Martin Luther found out it's absolutely impossible. That's why he broke away from the Catholic Church. This is how the Reformation happened. Because Paul, uh, Martin Luther, along with John Calvin and a whole, whole host of others, they came to the conclusion, I cannot please God in my own ability. I can't do it. So any fundamentalist preacher that comes along and says, you must do this, you must do that. I went to a church, I heard a guy preach and all the rules and the laws, and, and he's preaching from the New Testament. I'm thinking, what are you doing, man? You know, he came to the end of his, end of his sermon and not one word about the atonement of Jesus Christ. Not one word of the gospel in that message. Shame on any pastor and any church that invites people to come and worship the Lord and never once mention the work of Christ. Shame on you. When you come to this church, what you're going to hear on, on a consistent basis is our utter and complete dependence upon Jesus Christ and Christ alone. I have no confidence in my ability. I have no confidence in my flesh. My confidence is in Christ alone. Now, some people say, well, Pastor Allen, what about the seven habits? You teach the seven habits. Seven habits don't save you people. And I actually had, I actually had somebody say that to me back a few years ago. Somebody, well, somebody who should have known better, somebody been, went to Bible college, said, you know, I don't really agree with this because uh, this is not going to save us. I said, who said this saves us? This doesn't save us. This is about discipleship. This is about what it means to follow in the steps of Christ. You say, Pastor, what are the seven habits? Well, very simple. You have to have a daily walk with God. That doesn't save you. That's what you do when you're saved. After you put your faith in Christ alone, then you have a daily walk with God. And then you go to church every Sunday. 
And I'm speaking now to those of you who are watching from home. (laughs) And everybody here is laughing at you. (laughs) We go to church every Sunday. That doesn't save you, but that's what you do because you're saved. And, And then you... You practice what's called moment-by-moment holiness. Jesus put it like this. Thy, thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's all. We're just saying, God, I'm gonna, I, wanna, I want your grace and strength to do your will. And I know that's done in the power of the Holy Spirit. I can't do it in my own strength. And you have to serve. You have to show up to serve. Where, where, can I, where can I help out? How can I serve the body of Christ? And you, you, you've got to share your faith with others. Oh, you've got to be in a small group. You've got to hang out with other Christians. I was just talking to my brother on the phone yesterday. We talked for about an hour and a half and, and uh, talking about the importance of being with other believers. And the minute you are out of fellowship with other believers is the moment you begin to fall. Because you, the Bible says this. God says, or Paul says, don't, don't be deceived. God's not mocked. You become like the people you hang out with. And then you've got to make disciples. But making disciples is not a way to win favor with God. Winning, making disciples is, is, your, is your, your obedience to, to Christ's command to go and make disciples. And you need to give. Give of your time. Give of your time, treasure, and talent. Remember January? We had a whole month based on, on using your talents for the glory of God. Well, can I just say this to you? If you do all these seven habits, this is not getting you into heaven. What? What, pastor, are you telling me I'm doing all that? It's not even to get me into heaven. Listen, our confidence is in Christ alone. You put your faith in Christ. And then what do you do after you put your faith in Christ? You follow him. And that's what the habits are. They're just the habits of Jesus. What, what we're teaching you to do is the things that Jesus did. So habits aren't going to get you into heaven. Obedience is, is not going to even get you into heaven. Your good works are not going to get to heaven. When you stand bef- before God, you're not going to say, God, look at this. Whole, I, got a whole, I got a whole pocket full of good works for you to see. God said, I don't care about that. What did you do with my son? Hello? <laughs> yeah. What did you do with my son? That's the question that God's going to ask you. What did you do with my son? Did you believe him? Or did you reject him? And I'm going to tell you, it's rejecting Christ that is the impardonable sin. The unpardonable son, sin is rejecting Jesus Christ. Now, the false gospel says it's Jesus and something else. Well, let me remind you, for we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. This is, this is what it says. We, we worship, we worship the Christ, the one who has done for us all that we need to have done. Circumcision was uh, an outward sign of belonging to God. But the truly circumcised are those who put their faith in God alone. Abraham, for instance. Remember Abraham, the very first, the, the father of the Jewish people. And by the way, not just the father of the Jewish people, but the father of all who put their faith in God. Paul tells us that we are the children of Abraham if we have followed his example. And what did he do? He, did, it, it, he, 
he was not considered righteous because he was circumcised. He was considered righteous because he put his faith in God alone. Not in himself, but in God alone. This is what true Christianity is. You don't have faith in yourself. You have faith in God alone. Well, that was, that was definitely Abraham. Now, Jeremiah, when, when speaking to the children of Israel because of their sin, he says this in Jeremiah 9.25. He says, A time is coming, says the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised in body, but not in spirit. You see, that's what God wants. The external stuff doesn't matter. The icons on the wall, the, the evil eyes, and all the rest of that nonsense. None of that matters. What matters is that your heart is right with God, that your heart is circumcised. And that's what Paul's talking about. We who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We're the real circumcised people. Who cares about the outward signs? We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We don't put confidence in the flesh. We don't put confidence in ourselves. And I've known so many people who have, who have no peace in their life. They have no rest in God. And some, some of you may have read the book of Hebrews, and it keeps talking about the rest of God. And you're, I don't know what that means. Well, I'll tell you what it means. It just simply means that you have peace with God because you put your faith in Christ alone. That's where your peace comes from. That's where the rest comes from. And every time you sin or fall short, understand that God has not rejected you. But this is what people think because they think it's Christ and something else. So if you think it's Christ in you, then every time you fall short of the glory of God, every time you sin, you feel like you need to do something or you have to get re-saved. How many remember getting saved at camp about 100 times throughout your childhood? You don't need to do that. Why? Because your faith is in Christ alone, and his salvation is so great, his salvation is so great that he carries you through even when you sin and fall short. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And this is why we're told that if you, are, if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So you're not unsaved because you've sinned. You're not unsaved because you haven't done what you need to do. And honestly, that is really how I grew up. That's what I really thought. I thought, I've got to be busy trying to be good enough for God. I, and, and, and this is what people do. They, they, they feel like, oh, I, I have no peace. I've got no peace in my spiritual life. And why is that? Because they're putting their confidence in their self-effort. I want you to understand today your confidence is in Christ alone. You put your faith in Christ. And you are going to sin, and you are going to fall short, and you are going to mess up, and you are going to fail, and you are going to feel guilty, and you are going to feel shame. But don't do what Adam and Eve did. Adam and Eve, what did they do when they sinned? They went and hid from God. It's the last thing you should do. Don't go run away from God and hide from God. Run to God. And pour your heart to God. And Lord, I have failed you. And you know what you're going to get from God? You're not going to get a slap in the head. He's going to say, my child, I understand. I understand. Because my son came to this earth. 
And he suffered as you have suffered. He knows what temptations is all about, what temptation is all about. And he's going to swoop you up in his arm. He's going to hug you and love you and forgive you of all your sin. And, it's, and he's going to do that because you're not putting your confidence in yourself. You're putting your confidence in him. Are you falling short of the glory of God? Are you sinning today? Don't run from God. Don't hide from him. Run to him. Run as fast as you can. And keep running back to him. And you can say, Pastor Alan, I mean, I'm sinning every day. And, and God knows that. He knows that we are weak. You say, well, Pastor Alan, is this, this going to be the, the vicious cycle? No, of course not. You're in the process of being molded and shaped into the image of Christ. Understand that. And so God's going to allow you to go through some consequences and through some difficulty, just the way any parent does. God's going to allow you to go through some difficulties, through some consequences. And those consequences, that, that, that consequence for your sin is going to be the thing that shapes you and molds you. This is what, Paul, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. I always say Paul, because I always feel like Paul's the one that wrote Hebrews, but he didn't. Uh, in, in chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews says, don't be discouraged when God disciplines you. Don't give up. Don't be faint-hearted. Understand that God's disciplining you, not because he hates you, but because he loves you. Hallelujah. He ain't finished with you yet. God's not finished with me yet. So if you're, if you're sinning and falling short, run to the Lord. And there is forgiveness in Christ Jesus. His work at the cross is absolutely 100% sufficient to cover all our sin. Wow. This is the gospel. This is the good news. And I'm going to tell you this, that anybody who comes to Christ, the last thing he wants to do is, is displease the Lord. So I'm giving you permission to trust God even when you sin. And sin we will. And get angry and lose our temper and say things we shouldn't say and do things we shouldn't do. God knows our frame, and, he, and he's saying, well, don't worry, I'm going to shape you, I'm going to mold you, I'm going to make you into the man, the woman that I want you to be. Don't give up, just keep trusting in Christ. Amen. Wow. Now, Paul says, uh, let me just show you this. He says in verse 4, he says, though I could have confidence in my own effort, if anyone could, indeed, if others have reason for confidence in their own efforts, I have even more. Paul says, hey, if you want to turn to, to personal effort and confidence in self and, and, and ability, he said, well, that would be me. And then he goes on and he lists, he gives his list. Watch this. He says, I was circumcised. There's, there's seven things here, seven great, sevenfold attributes. And everybody knows that seven represents perfection. So Paul is saying, here, here's what I could be confident in if I wanted to be. If I was going to use your standards, you crazy Judaizers, here's, here's what I'm going to tell you. I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I am a pure-blooded citizen of Israel, and I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I'm a real Jew, if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church, and as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. Now, you would say, now, if anybody's going to get into heaven... It's the Apostle Paul, right? Uh, wrong answer. Because Paul says this about himself. I'm the chief of sinners. 
There's nobody worse than me. Whoa, Paul, how can you say there's nobody worse than you when you've given us such an amazing pedigree? It doesn't get better than this. Four of these things he's naturally born with, and three are his own achievements. The fact that he was circumcised when he was eight years old, it tells you that he is not a proselyte. He didn't come to the Jewish faith as an adult. He was born into it. He's an eighth-dayer. An eighth-dayer. Isn't that good? Paul was an eighth-dayer. And he says, furthermore, I am, I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel. He's racially pure. He's, he's not a half-breed. He's not a child of a proselyte. Both his parents were Jewish. And by the way, he calls himself an Israelite, which tells you that he is indeed a true Jew, because only Jews called themselves Israelites. All of us, we call Jewish people Jews. They call themselves Israelis. And then he says, I'm a, the member, I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin was the only son born into the promised land. Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin was the only tribe that remained faithful to the house of David after Solomon died. And of course, the first king of Israel came from the tribe of Benjamin. His name was Saul. And we think that, that in fact, the apostle Paul was named after Saul. Before he was called Paul, he was called Saul. So it's a big deal, people. And it gets, and, and wait, there's more. He says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. He spoke Hebrew, he spoke Aramaic. He's able to pray in Hebrew and read the scriptures in Hebrew. And his parents are both Hebrew, and he was trained by the famous rabbi Gamaliel. I mean, it doesn't get better than that. A Hebrew of Hebrews. A Hebrew if there ever was one. And then for his own personal achievements, he says, I was a member of the Pharisees who demanded the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. He was one of an elite group of only 6,000 Jewish people in all of Israel who kept the law. They would brag about the ability that they were able to keep all 613 laws of the Old Testament. He's saying, look, people, doesn't get better than that. I'm, I'm, the, best. I'm the best that you're going to find. Zealous? Oh, I was zealous. He said, I was so zealous that I persecuted the church. He was a Pharisee terrorist. He led, a, <laughs> he, he led the first pogrom. It was a pogrom against the Christians, a Jew leading a pogrom against the Christians. Yes, it doesn't get more zealous than that. And as for righteous, he said, I obeyed the law without fault. Notice that he doesn't say, I was perfect or sinless, but he said, when it comes to the law, I was blameless. In other words, uh, through, through using the, the uh, rituals and the procedures as, as provided by the law, I received uh, ritual purification, and so therefore I'm absolutely blameless. It doesn't get better than that. His, his pedigree is the best you're going to find anywhere. Let me just close with this. Maybe some of you can re relate to this. When I look back on my own Christian life, I became a Christian at, at a very young age. I, uh, I understood that I was really quite a good boy, a very good boy. And as a teenager, I was a good teenager. I was such a good teenager, in fact, that my dad gave me his credit card and let me use his car anytime I wanted and basically had total confidence in me. And, and I had confidence in me. I was really quite confident in my own spirituality, my own goodness. I'd never been drunk, and I have never been drunk. 
I was, I was polite, never smoked pot. I was a virgin when I got married. I kept the Ten Commandments. I was baptized as a child. I taught Sunday school when I was 15. I counseled at camp, at Calvary Temple Youth Camp when I was 15. I went to church twice on Sunday, not just once. And if Pastor Barber invited people to go to the prayer room after the second service, that is on Sunday night, I would go to the prayer room. But folks, it, as time went on and I started reading the scriptures and I came to know who Jesus was and I came to understand the, the righteousness and the holiness of Christ, I came face to face with the facts of my own inability to be perfect. And it was a shocking day for me when I realized that I was as much of a sinner as any one of my siblings. I was as bad a sinner as the worst of sinners so that I came to the place where I could say with the Apostle Paul, I am the chief of sinners. You want to have a fight? We'll fight about that. You might say, no, Pastor Allen, I'm the chief of sinners. And I'll say, no, I am. Here's what I know. The closer that you draw to Christ and the closer you understand, the more you understand his righteousness and his holiness and his purity, the more you recognize how utterly dependent you are on Christ alone. So I stand before you this morning as a man who absolutely has no confidence I have no confidence in my own ability to live the life that God's called me to live. But I have 100% full confidence in Jesus Christ, who is my righteousness. He's my righteousness. And he is all that I need. And he loves me. He loves me. He loves me. Would you stand with me, please? Fathers, we stand before you this morning. We understand that the one thing you've asked us to do is to put our faith and trust and our confidence in Christ alone. Father, forgive us, we pray, for depending on our own righteousness and our own good works on our own obedience. Lord, some of us are just knocking ourselves out, trying to win your favor. And yet you tell us clearly in Hebrews eleven six, it is impossible to please God without faith. Anyone who wants to come to God must believe that God exists and that he rewards those who sincerely seek him. Father, the only thing you're calling us to do is to look to Jesus and to take up our cross and follow you. God, it's all of faith in Christ alone. And our response, our loving response to what Christ has done is to follow in the steps of Christ. Father, as we go from this place now, we pray that we would go confident of Christ's love for us, confident, oh God, that you do love us, confident that our sins have been washed away, confident that the work that Jesus did on the cross is sufficient to cover all my sin, all the worst sins I could ever think of or commit. Christ's work at the cross is sufficient. And we give you the glory and we thank you in Jesus' name. And everyone said it with me? Yeah. Tell the person beside you, put your faith in Christ alone.